Would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Jonah 4, 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head and save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of God. You may be seated. I love when a scripture reading gets a laugh, <laughs> legitimately. We're getting it. We're getting the spirit of Jonah, I think. Actually, I think it was just Matt and Alexander, but you two are holding down the fort for us all. Well played. Um, well, before we jump into Jonah, I've, I want to say, uh, he's not here, and I've already said this to him personally, but just a public thanks to Ron Friesen, who preached for us last week. Uh, that was a huge gift to me. And I mentioned, I just want to circle back to this, I mentioned I met Ron about a year ago uh, uh, because I was really struggling uh, personally and emotionally and spiritually, and I shared that with a number of people in the church, and in some ways it was shared with everybody, at least to a certain amount of detail. Um, and part of the process of realizing, like, I, I needed more support in my life, uh, and I'm, me and my wife needed more support in our lives. Um, was reaching out to Ron for spiritual direction. And uh, that has been an incredibly helpful, uh, life-giving thing for me. And I just thought it'd be, a, it's a nice opportunity to just circle back around. Well, first of all, and say that's not the only time I have or ever will struggle to a significant degree. Um, I have struggles right now, for crying out loud, uh, as we all do. And it's just a reminder that we all need help in our spiritual journeys. Just because someone, you know, yammers at you quite a bit on Sundays does not mean that we're not just in, just as, in just as desperate of need of people, of the body of Christ to come around us and help us, help us in our walks with him. That's how it's designed. And so I just want to let you know, I hope you know that that's what I'm here for. Um, preaching is fun and cool and I enjoy it. I hope it's beneficial, but being a pastor has 
so, it's, it's so much more than that. It has to do with getting into the details of your lives. And so if, I just want to say, if you ever feel like, hey, it would be beneficial to process this or just get some prayer or, I don't know, maybe, maybe the pastor of my church might have something helpful to say in response to that. Maybe you've never thought that before. That's fair. Um, I want you to know, like, here's, here's what I hate. So, so many times when people reach out, it's like, hey, I'm struggling, and I know you're really busy, but I just want to say, I'm not that busy. <laughs> I'm somewhat busy. But, like, it's like, to me, that betrays, like, no, that's what I'm here for. I'm, I'm, I'm here, and, and the elders to a lesser degree, and uh, Justin down in the kids' ministry, and, like, all of us who have these places to serve here, um, we're here to serve you. We're here to care for you. We're here to uh, come alongside you in ways that you need. And so I, I just want to say that explicitly. We'll, we'll say that every now and then. I hope, I hope it, I wish it didn't need to be said. Um, but... Yeah, I want to help you understand what God is doing in your life and point you to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, point you to prayer to care for you in your spiritual distress. And I try to be proactive about reaching out to people, but please never hesitate to reach out. Please. And if I'm not the right person to help, I know a lot of good counselors and spiritual directors and people that might be really helpful. So um, there you go. That's for you. Um, well, we are concluding Jonah today, just four chapters. We decided to do it in four weeks. And the conclusion to Jonah is where the punchlines are given and clarity is brought to what's come before. And, and the readers, that's us, are left uh, with a, a piercing question that we must answer. So we're just going to dive right into that. We're going to pray first. Let's do that. Lord, thank you for just the privilege it is to gather, Lord. Um, I thank you for all these folks here. I thank you for this family that you are building here at Door of Hope Northeast, Lord. And we just pray that you would deepen and strengthen and widen that work. Lord, we, we want to be, whatever, whatever you envision, Lord, when you think about this little church, we want to be that. We don't want to have a different plan. We don't want to hinder your plan, Lord. We just want to humbly walk in step with what you're up to. Lord, as we open up Jonah, we just need you. We need you. We need your spirit to illuminate it for us, to convict us, to apply it for us, Lord. We need to know how to respond to this amazing chapter from your word. So, so do your work in us through this scripture, Father. We ask you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's, there's three questions that kind of punctuate this final section of Jonah, and I kind of want to just consider the, consider the passage uh, in relationship to those three questions. The first is, comes in verse 4. And so I'll just read this again. It, dis, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and hang on, what, what displeased him? Well, if you remember last week, what happened was Jonah, finally, after his experience of like refusing the call of God to the point where he gets on this boat to go the complete opposite direction to the end of the known world, but God brings this storm, this chaotic storm, and Jonah, instead of saying, hey, I realize it's me, you know, take me back, I'm going to go back on the mission God has for me, he basically, I think we can understand it well to, to see Jonah saying, just kill me, just throw me in the water, I'm done here. 
But in his journey down, sinking down into the water, Jonah actually has a change of heart, and he pleads with God, and God delivers him. God provides mercy and grace and rescue to him in the form of the one thing we all know about this story, if you know anything about it, which is this big fish that swallows him up. Weird mode of salvation, we can say, uh, but a mode of salvation nonetheless. It saved his life. And so Jonah now with this experience of like getting right to the edge of his life and pleading out to God for mercy, receiving that mercy in chapter three, which Ron taught for us, he picks back up the mission. Okay, the word of God comes to him again and says, yes, I will go. I'm gonna go to Nineveh. And I loved everything that Ron had to say, but one detail that Ron left out for us was the interesting nature of Jonah's sermon. In the Hebrew, it's only five words. And it basically just says, hey, 40 days, you're gonna be destroyed. That's it. And most scholars agree that what, what you're meant to see here is like, sure, Jonah went to preach the message, but he did not do it wholeheartedly. He doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention repentance. He doesn't mention the possibility of this calamity relenting. He just says, you're going to be destroyed, okay? You're going to be destroyed. And it's kind of like, and I'm out of here. God, are you happy? Are you happy? I did the thing. And what happens? As Ron said, in the, in the most unimaginable place, this just mass repentance broke out all the way up to the king. And so people are putting on sackcloth and ashes and they're repenting and they're stopping their evil and they're like, there's this real decision to, to turn a different direction. And God relented. The destruction did not come. The destruction did not come. And that is what Jonah is so mad about here. That's what displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. He is fiercely angry. And he prayed to the Lord, verse 2, and said. Actually, I was talking with Pete Richardson about this the other week. I, I, wanted, I was tempted to have you come up and do your You just did this impression of Jonah. Will you do it for us? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was like, you were, you were doing like Jonah's rant in a very petulant way. I was like, man. Pete's got spice. I like it. Um, but it is. This is like the most epically petulant, probably the most epically petulant rant in the entire Bible. It says, he prays to the Lord and says, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to be this way. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew, I knew it, that you are you are a God, a gracious God, and merciful, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in steadfast love, that you're relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, take my life from me. He wants to die again. This guy. Take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, first question, is this right, <laughs> Jonah? Is this right? How you feel? How you're responding? Do you do well to be angry? Should you be carrying this? Should you be responding this way? And let's just reflect on this for a second. Here is the heart of Jonah revealed. This is why we, we, we introduced the spoiler, but if you're reading this for the first time, you know, in, when you get to his refusal to go to, Tarsh to Nineveh in the first chapter, why doesn't he want to go? Is he just afraid? He goes, oh no, he hates these people. The last thing he wants is for them to change, for them to get a shot at mercy. 
Here is Jonah's heart laid bare. I knew it. This is the reason I fled, because I knew you were going to be more gracious than I'm personally comfortable with. And here we see, well, actually, before I get into that, I would say there, there are two, as far as I understand, there are really two main ways God can deal with great evil in the world. And remember, that's, that's the, how this whole thing started. The evil of the city of Nineveh had made its way up to God. It had reached a breaking point with him where he had to, he had to do something about it. He's long-suffering and he is gracious. He gives people time to, to repent and to turn and to change. But there is a point now, in the here and now, and there will be a t- the final point before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth where he says all sin is done. Like there will be no more room for it to flourish. Only love and only goodness and only justice and only peace from here on out. We get these foretaste moments of that in the here and now. And this was one of them. It had come up to the Lord and he, was, he had to deal with it. And as I understand it, there are two ways God can deal with sin and evil and injustice when it, when it does come up to him. One, he can work to change the people, right? He can do something inside of them. He can change them to make them stop, to make them repent, to make them change, that they might voluntarily lay down what they're doing. In the case of Assyria, the, the most horrific, brutal acts of violence you could possibly imagine. He can change their hearts that they willfully lay down their swords. It's one option. The second option, second option is that he can remove them from their victims altogether. And that can look a number of different ways. He can separate them physically. He can kill them. He can do all kinds of things. And sometimes he does do that. So those are the two options. It seems to me that God has. Jonah's rage shows that he would only accept the second option. He would only accept the second option. While he knew all along that the scales in the heart of God tip towards the first option. And that's why he quotes from Exodus, if you, a lot of you are probably aware, he's quoting from Exodus 34. This is like the first grand reveal of the character of God in relationship to this fallen world that we get in the Bible. He, re- he says this to Moses. Verse, I'll read this, verses 6 and 7, Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So so Jonah evidently had been one who had meditated on that text, Exodus 34, as any good prophet should, as any good uh, Jew should. This is one of the central passages that exclaims what God is like, where he reveals himself. And in it, he knew, he knew, and a lot of scholars are, are, do really well to point out this contrast. What, the, what this passage holds up for you is two really important things, that God is so loving and gracious, but he's also just. And he can't be one without the other. If he was just endlessly loving and forgiving to the point where he would just let humans endlessly victimize one another, then suddenly his love corrodes, doesn't it? But if he's all justice, then gosh, the human project probably would have just been eradicated from the beginning. He is in perfect balance, 
fully loving and merciful and gracious and long-suffering, but he's also fully just. But what's interesting here is even in that passage, and there are plenty of other things that are curious. I mean, what's going on with this, the sins of the fathers on the children and children's children? That, that deserves time. We just don't have it today. But notice here, he keeps steadfast love for thousands, but he visits the iniquity to the third and the fourth. You see that? That's the scale. His love and his mercy just outweighs, outweighs that sense of, of justice. And what that means is they're in perfect harmony in his economy. So, God would prefer, instead of smiting and eradicating someone, even in a horrific situation like this, he would prefer to have their hearts changed, for them to repent, for them to lay down their swords, to come worship him and come underneath his vision of life. And that seems to be the path that Nineveh has chosen and is heading down here. And I would just say as a sidebar, man, when we're doubting the goodness of God, I mean, Jonah's doubting it for the reason, the opposite reason most of us do, you know? Most of us, when we doubt the goodness of God, we're like, is he really just? Does he really care about this evil thing that I'm seeing? Does he really care about just how corrupt the systems of the world are? Jonah's, <laughs> Jonah's doubting the goodness of God from the other angle. Wait, or is he doubting it from that same angle? Yeah, I guess he is. I don't know. I'm, I'm winging it here. Um, anyway. When we're doubting the goodness of God, when we're doubting his character, may we be the kinds of people, door of hope, who can draw on scriptures like these to remind us. It's really important to have this reservoir of truth we can remind ourselves of. At any rate, any rate, Jonah's central conflict with God here, now that through the whole book and now it's pinpointed in the fourth chapter, is that he hates God's mercy. He hates God's grace for his enemy. He hates the fact that God loves Jonah's enemy. That's what's happening. And I just want to give Jonah a little bit of a break here because we're, this is meant to be, as we said, a comic, kind of a comic, uh, funny, like I, deeply ironic, satirical thing where we go, oh, Jonah, what a, you know, what an idiot. But just to give him a little bit of a break here, like, you know, we are meant to see the horror of his attitude, but if we're honest, most of us, I think, if we dig deep enough, we can find, we can find places in ourselves like this. Um, granted, it often takes being extremely wronged for it to kind of flower and see it in full, but it, it can take place. And um, there's a film Susanna and I watched, it's probably been 10 years now since we've watched it, should have rewatched it for this. I'd love to rewatch it. Anybody want to rewatch it with me? Let's do it. Um, but it's a 2000 film, uh, 2007 film from Korea called Secret Sunshine. The uh, director's name is Lee Chang Dong. Um, and it just explored the emotional reality behind this very issue better than any piece of art I've encountered, honestly. And I hate to say it, but I'm going to spoil the major dramatic beat of this movie. If you don't want to hear it, uh, I'm sorry, you're, you're locked in. Um, you can still enjoy the movie with the spoiler, though. But in short, it's a movie about a single mom who, after lots of grief and traumatic stuff, um, her name is uh, uh, Shin A. She's trying to get a fresh start in a new town. And horror, about uh, well, a good way into the movie, horror strikes her life again when her son, June, is kidnapped and murdered. 
little eight-year-old or so boy. So that, that's the kind of movie we're talking about here. So shortly after, it's revealed that it's her son's daycare teacher who was the murderer. And, you know, I know we don't want to think about things like this, but here's, here's where it connects to Jonah. Um, in the film, Shanae, in her grief, ends up becoming a Christian. She ends up becoming a Christian, and she gives her life to God and her time uh, to her new church community. And, you know, the movie, the movie presents this heartbreakingly beautiful depiction of, like, you know, real grief amidst the genuine hope and comfort that, that faith can and does bring to people. Here's the twist. Here's where it gets really interesting. A key moment in the film is when Shanae, in, she, she internalizes the teachings of Jesus and her church about, you know, enemy love and forgiveness and all of these things. And she decides, like, what she's going to do uh, for kind of her ability to move forward in life is she's going to go to prison and forgive her son's murderer. Amazing. So she goes. And some, some of the other characters are like, I don't know, if, I don't think you should confront him right now, whatever, she decides to go. And when she gets there, he's like full of peace and joy. Why? Because he's found God in prison. And he's been forgiven for the most horrific sin he's ever committed in his life. He understands. And she has to deal with that. She thought she was going, you know, there's a whole number of emotionally complex reasons she was going to have this moment. But in the film, she's been beaten to the punch by God's forgiveness. And the rest of the movie is just this tragic spiraling and dealing with, with that. But I just, you know, sorry to make you think about things like this. Um, but these things happen. These things happen. And it may not be something nearly as extreme as the murder of a child. Um, but nonetheless, there are things in our lives that, that, that pose these kinds of questions. How could God forgive that? How could God forgive her? How could God forgive him? And that takes this from being kind of a cute, funny, silly thing about an almost comically extreme villain into like, oh man, yeah, there are moments in life where I do not want God to be the God who is merciful and loving and slow to anger and full of steadfast love. I want him to be the one who visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the millionth generation. That's what I want. There are times when the wideness of the grace of God becomes utterly scandalous to us. It comes when someone has wronged you at the deepest level. It comes when, when someone who threatens you or unsettles you or makes you feel unsafe in your own home receives his mercy. It comes when it comes to the politician or the business person or the bureaucrat who's inflicted harm on the world at a scale most people will never have the opportunity to. When it comes to the person behind your worst trauma, your greatest loss, your deepest wound. We do well to remember this is not to say those actions are justified. God's heart breaks with you. He is a God of justice. He is. He will put all things right and he will not let these things go on endlessly. But nonetheless, he is merciful. And if even these most horrific, you know, perpetrators of these things need his mercy, so do we, so do you, so do I. The grace of God can be, is a scandal if we really understand it. And that's what Jonah was coming face to face with.
Jonah's mad. God says, are you right to be mad? And the story moves on. Second question culminates in verse 9. So Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that, he might, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Hey, things are turning around. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, <laughs> second time, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do angry? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So notice what Jonah's doing here. He's so mad at God. He goes outside the city, away from the city, you know, across the way, and he just sits. And what's he hoping for? He's hoping for the meteor shower. He's hoping for, like, the plague to break out or something. He's hoping for the destruction of the city. That's what he wants. Imagine him going outside the city just hoping for its destruction. Now, just what a sad, dark image that is. And he builds his own little shelter, we're told. Builds his own little way of kind of caring for his immediate needs. But then this is just such an interesting little thing that probably we could spend a lot more time on than we will. But he builds his own shelter, and then God provides this supernatural shelter for him. It's like he's built this little, this little booth thing, this little tent thing, and then God's made this plant like supernaturally come up to cover him. And uh, then God immediately takes his away, and it says there's this wind that comes, and a lot of scholars think that we're meant to understand that the, the wind like blew over his shelter as well. So that's why he's suddenly back out in the scorching sun. So God gives and then takes away this little, this little thing. And I just think we just get another little picture into what's motivating Jonah here. Jonah's heart is revealed through this little episode because Jonah was so happy. He was so delighted with this little bit of provision from God. And then the second... Uh, that it's taken away, his adversity towards God is right there. We have a guy here who loves the stuff of God, but not God himself. Loves the provision of God. He likes, he likes the shelter that God can provide, but he does not want to align his heart and his vision, his values with what God wants. And he's angry, and he's angry for the plant, it says. He's kind of like, God, don't you care about, don't you care about nature? Don't you care about this plant? Not interesting. He's angry for the plant. God's like, do you do well to be angry for the plant right now? Yes, I do well, angry enough to die. So God's using the seed. He brings up this conversation about the seed of compassion. The first little, honestly, the little bit of compassion we get for Jonah in the story for this plant to, to kind of say, okay, there's, there's, there's like this little... There's like this little ember burning inside of you, Jonah, for this plant. Let's use that. Let's use that. Okay, we can work with this. And that leads us to the third question. And the Lord said, let's talk about this. You pity the plant. You have compassion on the plant. You have love for the plant. But you didn't labor for it. 
You didn't, you didn't make it grow. You didn't water it. You didn't fertilize it. You didn't care for it. Nothing you did made the plant grow. And it just came into being in one night and perished in a night. But you care for this little thing. Here's the question. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. They do not know what's going on in the deep things of life. They are utterly clueless. They are lost. And also much cattle. <laughs> it's amazing that that's the last phrase of this book. There's also cows there. So the contrast here is where the meaning lies. So you didn't labor for the plant. You didn't make it grow. What about this city? Every one of these 120,000 people is an image bearer of me. Yes, this is nightmarishly evil. That's why I sent you to do something about it. But these are people whom I love, whom I have made grow. I have authored their lives. I have cared for them. I have sustained them. And not even just the people, but the animals too. There's animals there. God loves animals. He created animals. He sustains animals as well. So you're worried about this one little plant that just because it gave you a little bit of convenience and a little bit of sort of temporal comfort. Can you not imagine, Jonah, how I would be able to extend a lot of care towards 120,000 image bearers? born with my dignity and value. That's what's happening. So God has decided to change Jonah's enemies rather than destroy him. And just one more time, for those in the back, this is not about God turning a blind eye to sin or to, or to pain but it's about which road God prefers to bring an end to that pain, to that sin, to that evil. And we just have this forgotten lesson on grace, just incredible self-righteousness. Remember, the turning point for Jonah was whenever he was at rock bottom, at the bottom of the ocean, pleading out and with his final breath to God to save him. He knew he, he was, he, he, he came face to face with the folly of doing things his own way. And the, and the idiocy of what he thought he wanted, which was to die in that moment. And God met him with grace and forgiveness and compassion, even though this man, this prophet, had just given God the finger and had gone the other direction. The grace and mercy came for Jonah and how quickly he is to forget the lesson. How quickly is he to see to be scandalized by the grace of God towards these other people when he has needed it just as much as anyone just a chapter before. And there's something about these forgotten lessons of grace that, that are just team up with self-righteousness that remind us it is possible to know the scriptures, to know Exodus 34, to have a genuine call from God in Jonah's case, to be an actual, honest-to-God prophet to talk with God explicitly. And for those things, somehow, in some twisted way, to actually hinder your ability to see your neighbor as God does. It is very possible to be as immersed in the things of God as the prophet Jonah and to be standing here ex exercising more compassion for one tiny vine 
than for 120,000 people and their cattle. So question for all of us is does a sense of self-righteousness affect your relationship with God? Does it affect your relationship with your church community? Does it affect your relationship with your neighbor and with your city? We'd be fools to come to the end of this book without asking ourselves that question. Do we have a false sense of self-righteousness? Have we forgotten the grace that's been afforded to us that we can't extend compassion to those who haven't received it yet? Well, the book ends here. The book ends here, and it's kind of depressing. It's just kind of this like, well, okay, another terrible religious leader who's kind of here like misrepresenting and disobedient to God, though he should be the one who, uh, who should be faithful. But this book, you know, when we read it from the lens as, as uh, on this side of the New Testament, we clearly see, we clearly see the better Jonah later in the biblical story. Another prophet, another religious leader who, who didn't fall into these things. Rather than Jonah and his hatred of his enemies here, to the extent that he'd much rather have them smited, smitten? Smitten? Is smitten like romantically? Is that like to be smited? Are there two different words? It's one word? Two different meanings, one word. Smitten or smote? Yeah, excellent. (laughs) Thank you. Well, okay. Smote is also a word. How much time should we give to this? (laughs) Different part of speech? Let's dig into that a little bit. What's... No, I'm just kidding. Okay, we can move on. He would much rather his enemies be killed. We'll just leave it there. Choose a different different verb. Okay. Okay. But there's, there's a different one. Past tense. Now we're talking about tenses. <laughs> Any other angles we should consider on this? So, but there is a different prophet <laughs> who didn't hate his enemies, taught to love your enemies. Think of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it was said. Everyone says this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, so that you would share the fundamental disposition and heart of God the Father, which is to love even those who are enemies, even those who are far away. For he makes, love this, his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God the Father still provides those blessings of common grace, even to the unjust. That's just the kind of God he is. And though Jonah, at the end of the story, finds himself outside the city looking on it, hoping for its condemnation, in Jesus we see a a prophet who weeps over the lostness of his city. Matthew 23, verse 37. says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, people of God, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. The heart of God, this motherly instinct here, just poured out for these people who kill the prophets and reject and stone those who would bring the, the, the true message of God. He just longs to see them gathered underneath his wings. But they won't. But he desperately desires it so much. And then in, you know, Jonah's desire to see his enemies destroyed or killed, we have Jesus dying for his enemies, for this city, this unwilling city's salvation. Even as he's being hammered to the cross, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the image of the city here. Jesus says, love the city. Jesus weeps over the city. Jesus dies for the city's salvation. Thank God we have Jesus and we're not left with Jonah. <laughs> Thank God. Notice there's not really a proper ending to this book and I realized, uh, I, I wasn't sure until this week how many biblical books use this literary technique. Turns out it's really just Jonah and the book of Mark that we just finished studying a few months ago that do this that leave you with kind of a non-ending that at first glance is kind of like, we sure? That's all? That's all we've got? We're not going to tell us what Jonah does or what happens to the city or anything else? It leaves you with this weird cliffhanger, and most scholars agree. It's very, very intentional. This isn't someone, you know, got distracted finishing the end of the book. This is a deeply piercing artistic decision on behalf of the author of this book to leave you in a particular place. So did Jonah repent? Did he come to see God, things God's way? Or did he double down on his stubbornness? What happens next? We're not told. But it's an open-ending way, open-ended way of putting the question to the reader. Question, the, what this is designed to do is to turn to you who are hearing this, who have been reading this, and to say, hey, how will you answer God? That's the question. Should he love the great city of Nineveh? Should he? Should he not? How are you going to answer? I love the way that Tim Keller put it in his, his Jonah book. He said, it's this ending, it's as if God shoots this arrow of a question at Jonah, but Jonah disappears and we realize the arrow is aimed at us. How do we answer? How do we feel? What's our response, Door of Hope Northeast? And the way I see it, there are two paths before us toward our city. Let's just talk, let's talk, talk about our great city where we, we live, Portland, Oregon. There are two paths. We can take the path of Jonah. We can sit outside the city with a bucket of popcorn in hand, just waiting for God to smite it, just waiting for it to be given over to its own destruction. Oh, it's so gross here. So many bad decisions have led to the state of things. I hope it all just burns up. 
We can. It's one choice. Or we can take the path of Jesus. We can come into the city as a presence of salt and light, of love and sacrifice, of peacemaking and generosity, of hope and healing, of grace and truth. Even if it means risk, even if it means discomfort, even if it means suffering, even if it means being driven out, we can bring the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and we can live it out with our hands and our feet. In the deepest sense, we can choose to have the heart of our Father and the heart of our Savior and the heart of the Spirit, the new heart that the Holy Spirit has given us, to have compassion on Portland, our great city. We all have that choice. By the Spirit of God, may we make the right one.